According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. At least those of us who are here are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1 will be our text this morning, although we will be glancing at Luke occasionally. We haven't done very much in terms of the gospel of Mark. So uh, we will use Mark's account as our primary text for this episode, the fifth of the episodes in the Galilean ministry. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, setting aside this time for his glory. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word, thankful for this day and opportunity we have to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, uh, the roads are slick, as you know, because you sent the rain. We are praying for any others who may even now still be on their way here this morning, asking for safety and protection as they travel. And praying, Father, for distractions to be set aside as we open up your truth and we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the fifth of our episodes in the... uh, Galilean ministry, as I mentioned, this is the longest of the sections that we're going to be dealing with. It has 56 episodes in this uh, particular section. Uh, Probably it is the most comprehensive until we get to the Passion Week itself. The Passion Week having 41 events associated with it, plus another 13 following the resurrection. So this will be the bulk of our Life of Christ study right here in the, uh, the Galilean ministry. As far as the demoniac healed on the Sabbath day, our text is Mark 1, 21 through 28, compared to Luke 4, verses 31 through 37. It is not an episode that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Gospel of John, although there is an episode similar to this uh, that, uh, in some certain harmonies anyway, will try to blend the two. This harmony separates out this particular demoniac healing with uh, one that will come later. And so depending on which harmony you're following, I trust you're all following our published harmony, but if you are following an alternate harmony that's out there, and there are several, um, then uh, this event may be confused with a different demoniac that uh, we'll be dealing with coming up. All right, so far we've recognized under point one, we're going to give you a total of five observations from this text. The first one of which, this episode marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry with full-time vocational disciples. Marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry. Now, he's been in teaching ministries before. He's been in training ministries before, although it is debatable when the disciples were baptizing in that early Judean ministry, whether they were baptizing as such as a result of Jesus's training or whether that was carrying on the training they had previously received from John the Baptist. Uh, It's probably much more likely that they received all that training from the Baptist as they were proclaiming the kingdom of heaven at hand. And uh, the Lord allowed that that ministry to continue in uh, that early episode. In any event, what's not debatable is that there has been a uh, a key hinge. Subpoint A, setting aside secular careers marked a turning point. And when he called them to leave their 
fisher, uh, fisherman career to become fishers of men, this was a key turning point, not only in the lives of each of, of those individual disciples, but also in terms of accelerating the demonic attacks, accelerating the angelic conflict. Whereas I believe we're going to demonstrate that the, the affliction and the conflict in the Nazareth synagogue was certainly demonic, but it was still, it was under the radar, so to speak. It was behind the scenes. It was motivating the anger, motivating the range, impelling the, the Nazareth uh, synagogue people there to try to drive Jesus off a cliff. But nowhere in that episode were the demoniacs present, were they compelled to speak forth where the demons compelled to just cry out and acknowledge the glory of our savior such as we have here as jesus is teaching and uh in verse 23 there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out and that that uncontrolled outburst of of verbal testimony is present here in in capernaum and it was not present in Nazareth, And what we're trying to demonstrate is the fact that the uh, the angelic conflict has been permitted to intensify and to accelerate at this stage, given where Jesus is in training these disciples. And we can't anticipate something similar at Austin Bible Church when young men step forward and say, I have a gift and I need to be trained. And can you train me? And and I want to be involved in a, in a full time vocational um, uh uh, program in, in which I'm, I'm going to receive training and eventually placement into service. See, once that starts happening, anticipate conflict to rage. We examine the aspect of it from Luke 9, 57 through 62 as well, and also the pattern from 2 Timothy 2, 2. Training faithful men who will be able to train faithful men is the pattern for the dispensation of the church. And we see it's played out here as Jesus Christ calls these disciples, and he begins to train them. And he's not sending them to the school of Gamaliel. He's not sending them to any of the Pharisee schools. He's not sending them to, and there were several. And there were, well, two preeminently that competed with, with each other, but also several others as well. And he's not sending them to any of those approved rabbinic uh, schools. He's training them himself. And he's expecting that they are going to train others as well. And that is indeed the pattern. It's I don't often turn down the chance to turn to Timothy. Uh, I'll just simply reread second timothy 2 2 by way of reminder the things which you have heard from me so this is timothy who trained under paul see in a one-on-one training circumstance where you have a master and you have a apprentice and this was the method for training pastors the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Something else that should happen is that this training ministry that takes place is not in isolation, it's not hidden away, it's not outside of public view, but the entire flock observes it. The, the benefit of training in a local assembly is not only do you have the one-on-one training from, a, from a, a mentor to an apprentice, but that you have the full public view of the entire congregation where they can testify to this young man and to what his spiritual gift is because they've observed it. They've observed it being trained. They've observed it being used. They've testified in the case of a pastor teacher that they've been, that they've been fed, they've been shepherded. They've, they have felt as sheep that they have recognized the voice of a shepherd that they can follow that voice. And uh, so there is a public witness there. And obviously there's more than just pastor teachers that need to be trained. It could be any spiritual gift that's being trained in this mentorship type pattern. 
So the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so this then also becomes the pattern that when once that apprentice trains and once that training is complete, he is no longer a novice. He is no longer an apprentice. And and this has been really a pattern for training, not just in for pastors, but in many career paths, in many occupational paths, in many uh, trades and skills, for example. Uh, an apprentice welder will learn from a master welder or, or different skills, for example, or carpentry and, and other uh, mechanics and other processes can be learned in this fashion. And when your training is complete and you're able to do the work, you set out no longer as an apprentice, but now you are a a journeyman, so to speak. Now you're able to do the work and you're able to travel. You're able to learn from other masters. You're able to do the work yourself. See, then eventually at some point, though, you reach a point in your growth where you are now, uh, you now have the wisdom and the ability to train others. So you're able to step into the master role and accept the uh, responsibility for training apprentices yourself. See, and it should not get to that point. Timothy should not ever assume that he'll never get to that point to where Timothy will, you know, a young man will come to Timothy here in Second Timothy 2, 2 and say, uh, you know, Timothy, I think I have the pastor teacher gift. I want to train to be a pastor. And Timothy will say, great, I'll send you to Paul. He trained me. No, Timothy says, perfect. I will train you. Because from generation to generation, this then becomes the pattern. And at the point where Timothy is ready for that in his own growth, in his own maturity as a pastor teacher, he will now be able to train apprentices and he won't be sending them off to Paul to be trained. See, and then those that Timothy trains, they're called here in verse two, faithful men Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Because, see, here in 2 Timothy, Paul's anticipating that he's going to be beheaded any day now. He's going, to be, he's going to be out of the picture, off stage. It's going to be up to Timothy. It's going to be up to Titus. It's going to be up to Luke. It's going to be up to the men of this, of this generation, Aristarchus and Archippus and these guys. They're going to have to train the next generation of pastors. And then when Timothy and Titus are off the scene, who's going to train the generation after them? Well, the faithful men that they train. See, there's four generations here in uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 2, because there's Paul, there's Timothy, there's faithful men, and there's others also. Four generations. And this is the pattern. And we're observing this now with Jesus and his disciples. Now, we also observe that this episode marks the first confrontation with demonic powers since Jesus' victory over the satanic temptations. We haven't heard one peep out of Satan or out of any other fallen angel or out of any demon, we haven't heard one demonic peep since the uh, temptation incident of Matthew 4 or Luke 4. It marks the first confrontation. And we observed that when that episode came to a close in Luke 4.13, that the devil departed until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. And now we apparently find out what those opportune times were going to be. There were going to be conflicts in the synagogues. Opportunity was to be found in the synagogues. And this is where we left off and where I want to return to the study with this as an emphasis here this morning. Opportunity was to be found in the synagogues. Jesus Christ in his teaching ministry is going to, first of all, start approaching the synagogues. And when he's run out of there, then he'll start teaching in, on mountains and hilltops and 
uh, isolated places and on boats in different places, but he will still continue to enter into the synagogues at every opportunity that he has. And that is where the devil already has his agents, his minions, lurking, ready to pounce. See, the adversary knows that he doesn't want accurate, powerful teaching to be delivered to the people. He would much rather have the legalistic, powerless, controlling teaching being given to the people. In other words, the ministry of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where it is lacking any power at all and where it is geared towards uh, accumulating uh, personal prestige, where it's geared towards accumulating followings. All right. And we find this here. So I'm going to return back now to uh, our text in Mark chapter 1. As I mentioned, Luke 4 is the parallel account. But opportunities, when he left him for an opportune time, it's remarkable how um, that opportune time appears to include demonic infiltration into the synagogues. You know, somebody asked J. Vernon McGee one time what he, uh, if he was at all concerned about the honky-tonks on Saturday nights. And he said, you know what, I'm much more concerned about the local churches on Sunday mornings. <laughs> you know, as if, you know, they wanted him to get involved in all these crusades to try to clean up morality in Los Angeles, for example. You know, well, much more concerned about false teaching and error and liberalism creeping into theology and all the other things that he observed back in his day. As we read this again, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. And the term here for amazed, I was going to uh, spotlight that. I don't have the notes prepared, but we can look it up here. In all likelihood, it's Thaumadzo, but could be wrong. Uh, Mark 1.22, they were amazed at his teaching. I'm not getting my scrolling to work very well here. Uh, I know why. I came out of a standby mode, and sometimes Windows doesn't do too well in standby mode. <laughs> All right. They were amazed at his teaching. Okay, it's not Thaumadzo. It's another term. Exaplesanta. In any event... This was something they weren't accustomed to. This was something out of the ordinary. This wasn't just, ho-hum, here's another teacher. Here is something that leaves them speechless. It leaves them stunned, so to speak, in the sense of uh, having their face slapped. Such as what would be totally shocking if you walked up to somebody and you smiled and you introduced yourself and you said, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and they just slapped you across the face. Like, Wow. Have we met before? What did I do to you? <laughs> you know, this is a slap in the face shock. They were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, the contrast here between what they were used to and what they were getting now couldn't be sharper. And teaching as one with authority. I want you to note that the scribes had authority. 
But theirs was not the authority of the word of God. It was not the authority of, of, of God himself as played out in his word. But it was their own personal authority. It was their tyranny. It was their dominion where everybody fights for their own, their own turf, their own fiefdom, their own control, their own allegiance. Where each teacher would want to have students that were in allegiance to themselves. See, each school would have their very clear lines of allegiance and you were going to be very much uh, allied with the school of Hillel, for example, or the school of Shammai. You'd be very much uh, subject to a particular teacher and your allegiance had to be to that teacher or to that school or to that branch of, uh, of rabbinic thought, for example. That was what they had turned the authority of God's word into, a tool to try to gain followers. Not all that different, actually, from what we've been studying in Corinth, for example, where they were totally broken down into their schisms. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And they had turned the issue there into allegiance to a particular teacher rather than submitting to the authority of the word itself. The word is authority. And as Jesus Christ starts proclaiming the word with authority, they've never seen this before. See, it's unusual. Kind of like the circumstances we're observing in Horseshoe Bay right now. A brand new Bible church just getting started. A, a methodology of teaching, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept. They never heard anything like that before. And they had 16 weeks of it or whatever, however many times I was out there teaching Daniel. Now they've had it for two, almost three weeks with, uh, with Pastor Mike Dodson. And they're getting a flavor for systematic, authoritative teaching from God's Word. And a lot of those folks have never had exposure to anything like this before. And so it's a good thing. He was teaching with authority, teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then, at that moment, triggered by the authoritative teaching, was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. The uncontrolled outburst, it just came springing out. Similar to how when the the stones would have done that at his triumphant entry if they tried to, the disciples tried to shut up the children and say, quit singing those Hosanna songs, quit singing his praise. And Jesus says, no, this is uncontrollable. This is going to burst out to proclaim the glory of the, of the Messiah, the king entering his kingdom. And if you silence these children, the stones will cry out. Well, now here are these demons crying out. So point three, the third observation we're going to make here, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. A man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. The terminology is slightly different between Mark and Luke. And we'll give you both expressions here this morning. Because the, the contrast, well not the contrast, but the, the, the syntax of the passage as it's used, the man with the unclean spirit is almost... Uh, identical to terminology you and I would use for being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only was he, did he have an unclean spirit, but in terms of a possession, a thing, so, you know, an item you might own or an item you might have, but it filled him. It controlled him. It's the same language as we would use if we were in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That is, in the Spirit, in that kind of a phrase. So subpoint A... This is the phrase as it's used in Mark 1, verse 23. It's en numati akatharto. And I'm going to give you the, well, you've got two terms there. Numa, 
4151 and Akathartos, number 169, both of which are interesting word studies if you want to pursue either one. Pneuma is the standard word for spirit. It's also the word for wind or breath. And it could be used of the Holy Spirit. It could be used of the human spirit. It could be used of an evil spirit. It could be used of a good spirit because all angels are spirits. All right, we'll give you some vocabulary on that here in a moment. Pneuma is just a general term meaning spirit. And you have to tell from context uh, by the adjective that follows. Is this the, uh, the pneuma uh, uh, hagias for holy? Then it's the Holy Spirit. Okay. This one's the, the pneuma akathartos, which is the unclean spirit or an unclean spirit. But it's phrased in, uh, with, the, with the preposition here, an, meaning in. I'll even change colors here. Well, black maybe not be as visible. Uh, but the, the preposition an, meaning in. Oh, did it again. Maybe yellow's the best. Or even white. In numati akatharto, in an unclean spirit, with an unclean spirit, in the sphere or under the power of an unclean spirit. The particle in, the preposition in, is almost as exhaustive as the English word in, because you can use in or with or by in so many different ways. All right? So just then was a man in their synagogue, and there's another in, in their synagogue, in or with or by an unclean spirit. And en pneumati, in the spirit, is a phrase, if, if we didn't have this akatharto here, if all we had was there was a man in the synagogue in the spirit, we would assume that he's in fellowship. We would assume here's a believer under the failing of the Holy Spirit because that phrase in pneumati, in, in the spirit, is such uh, an expression regularly found throughout the New Testament, well, in the epistles mainly, for believers in the spirit. Uh, Jesus, uh, John said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos as uh, Christ appeared to him and he received that message. But we don't have in the spirit by itself. It's in the spirit. What kind of spirit? An unclean spirit. That he not only had this spirit. I mean, think about things that you have. You know, I have uh, lots of things that I haven't seen now in ages. Right? But I have it. I know where it is. I could probably find it. It's in a drawer somewhere. See? I have uh, my combat medals from Desert Storm. I have my uh, Kuwait Liberation Ribbon. Somewhere. Okay? It's in a drawer. It's in a box. I'm pretty sure I know where it is. But it takes me a while to find it. I, I think the, the idea of having is just weak. Because we can have things and we don't pay much attention to them. Here's a man who has an unclean spirit. But it's not like it's in a box or a drawer somewhere and he hasn't paid attention to it in years. He has it. It has him. Might be a better way of saying it. The demon has him. He is in the spirit, not the Holy Spirit. He's in the unclean spirit. And whereas you and I can be filled with the Holy Spirit, this man is filled with or possessed by an unclean spirit. And this is now a spirit that fills and controls and guides and directs, does everything in this man that the Holy Spirit would do in you and I. See, that's what demonic possession is all about. 
We, uh, we enjoy having the filling of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy to where we've confessed our sins and all unrighteousness is now cleansed and the Holy Spirit now fills us. That is, He can guide us, influence us, teach us, lead us. That's exactly what these demons do under demonic possession. They take control. So this phrase, en pneumati a catharto, in an unclean spirit, in the sphere of, under the power of, under the influence of an unclean spirit. Now the phrase as it's used in Luke is slightly different. This, uh, the phrase in, in Luke uses the phrase having, having. With the verb echo here, having. And this is why I say it's kind of weak. Because anything that's having, well, you know, you might have something, but you don't use it very much. You don't, you don't pay attention to it. You haven't seen it for a while. And, and I think that the phrase in Mark is more descriptive. It's more vivid. In an unclean spirit. With an unclean spirit. Under the influence of an unclean spirit. And it uses similar terms. It uses pneuma, just like Mark does. It uses akathartos, just like Mark does. But in between pneuma akathartos, it adds the word demon. So having the spirit of an unclean demon. Having the spirit of an unclean daimonion. An unclean daimonion. Interestingly enough, because Luke is a Gentile, unlike Mark. Luke is writing to a Gentile, to the most excellent Theophilus. Luke has to explain to this Gentile that demonion, demons, aren't good. <laughs> because the understanding to the Greek mind or to the Roman mind is that demons could be either good or bad. That there are good demons and that there are bad demons. And so Luke has to include the, the terminology, which for you and I is a bit redundant, that this is an evil demon. That this is the spirit of an unclean demon. And given his Gentile audience, it's quite interesting. All right, vocabulary you're going to want to study under subpoint B includes this term daimonion. It's number 1140. Daimonion, number 1140. D-A-I-M-O-N-I-O-N, daimonion. And there is a similar term, not here, but elsewhere in the New Testament, called a daimon. D-A-I-M-O-N, with a long O, the omega O, the long O. So daimonion and daimon. Daimonion and daimon. To be technical, daimonion is simply a form of daimon, but it appears so often itself that it basically has become its own word. And in the Strong's Index, they gave it a number, uh, different listings, number 1140, whereas daimon is number 1142. To be technical about it, daimonion is simply a form of daimon. But they do have separate Strong's numbers and, and they're treated differently. It's a substantive uh, neuter adjective and it's treated as a, a noun, so it kind of becomes its own word. They're both translated as demon, for the most part, in the King James, well, no, in the New American Standard. You've got a lot of trouble with the King James translations, where sometimes it's rendered demon, sometimes it's rendered devil. Uh, even though it's not the term diabolos. Uh, diabolos is pretty standard as slander or devil. And I think New American Standard and NIV, New King James, the more modern translations have done better at rendering diabolos as devil and daimon and daimonion as demon. 
They're both translated as demon. There's a verb form called daimonizomai, where you add the idzomai ending on daimonion. And daimonizomai is the verb form that means you are possessed, you are controlled. That a demon is in you and doing what it wants. That's what demonic possession is all about. That's why believers cannot be demon-possessed. Because a demon cannot possess you, cannot own you. You belong to Jesus Christ. The demon cannot step in and overpower your master. Your master is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit who indwells you cannot be overpowered. So, Daimonizomai, number 1139, possessed by a demon. We're going to see, this is, as I say, this is the first of many Many instances where the Lord will be casting out demons. Mary Magdalene said had seven demons cast out of her. Not clear if all seven were at the same time or it was again and again and again and again and again and again. But we'll see a number of these episodes here with Mary Magdalene. All right. Now, why proceed in any more of this? Should we be obvious enough? To simply read the text. When my Bible says there was a man in the uh, in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. All right. I believe there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. <laughs> All right. I believe demons are real is what I'm trying to say. Jesus Christ believed demons are real. Jesus Christ speaks to the demon. Jesus Christ rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus Christ recognized the reality of that demon and ordered that demon to exit the man. He ordered the daimonion to depart from the anthropos. The demon had to leave the man when he was ordered to do so by Jesus Christ. See, there is too much... Uh, denial of these realities today where churches will tell you there's no such thing as satan or churches will tell you that you know angels and demons is all make-believe and it's all uh mythology and it was all you know it was just the the paganism of the time and they incorporated it in you know, the superstitions of mythology and they incorporated it into uh into the bible record not so let's believe the text for what it says that uh, that these are actual occurrences now, as far as the spirit terms that we want to recognize, under subpoint C, let's just examine four other spirit terms to make sure we recognize what we're dealing with here. This is an unclean spirit, a spirit of uh, a demonic power that motivates carnal activities, unclean carnal activities, shall we say lascivious activities. That's not the only aspect of sin, of course. Some people have more of a weakness to asceticism. Some people have more of a weakness to, um, you know, a phony religion or to uh, an artificial righteousness or some standard of pride that can, look, uh, you know, a moral depravity rather than an immoral depravity. See, that's not what this particular demon is oriented towards. This particular demon is oriented towards uncleanness. All right, now... Other spirit terms, we have the Spirit of God, i.e. the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and dozens of places throughout the New Testament. But it's with the same terminology that we have, the same syntax that we have in Mark chapter 1, which is why I wanted to highlight it. The Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. 
other spirit terms. And I'm going to turn over there to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. And let's put it up here in parallel. I don't know why that does that. Let's just do that. First Corinthians 12 and verse 3. And here we have the same ennumati. Whereas here we have ennumati. Oh, white won't work, will it? Here we have ennumati akatharto in an unclean spirit. Here we have enthumati theu, the spirit of God. But can you see how the, the, the grammar is almost identical? The, 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 the formula, not the formula, but the, the, the structure of the sentence is nearly identical. They both have enumati, in the spirit. In the spirit, or in spirit. But it's the adjective that comes after. In spirit of uncleanness, in the spirit of God. Enumati fa'u. And uh, here it is again. Enumati hagiyu, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when we deal with the spirit realm, we must make certain that we are testing the spirits, make sure it's from God, make sure it is the Holy Spirit that's guiding our thoughts, that's directing our decisions. If we hear a message, let's make sure it's being communicated by the spirit of truth, not the spirit of error. Because these these posers, these imposters are disguising themselves as angels of light and they're wanting to deliver messages that we'll start listening to. But they're not God's messages, they're their own messages. They're the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Why we need to be on guard with respect to this. All right. Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. We've also got ministering spirits. The term for angels in Hebrews 1.14. They're called ministering spirits. Angels are spirits. They're not people. They're not human beings. They don't have physical bodies. They can assume physical form for brief periods of time, but they are not physical beings. They are spirit beings. Hebrews 1.14, with reference to the elect angels, are they not all ministering spirits? Send out to render service unto those who will inherit salvation. Note, all angelic beings are spirits. The question remains, are all spirits angelic beings? If every angelic being from Michael to Gabriel to Satan to every other angel that's ever lived, if all angelic beings are spirits, we have to ask the question, can that be turned around? Are all spirits also angelic beings? Or is there a possibility that there are spirits that are not themselves angels? Such as Acts 23 verses 8 and 9 gives us, I think, a clue, I think a very good clue. That yes, all angels are spirits, but is there a difference between a spirit and an angel? Verse 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and began, this is during one of Paul's trials, some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. 
Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. All right. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him out to the barracks. So in any event, there is one passage where a distinction is drawn between angels and spirits. Although all angels are spirits, I think it's a legitimate question to turn around and ask, does that mean all spirits are angels? Logically, that's not necessary. Logically, it doesn't, you don't have to conclude that every spirit is also an angel. There could be non-angelic spirits. See, that's just logically now. We'll examine some things more thoroughly when we develop out particularly the origin of demons in uh, some upcoming classes. Other phrases includes the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3. The spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3. Now, here is an interesting use of the term spirit. So we took 1 John out of my Bible. There it is. 1 John 4, 3. This is why it says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. See, the denial of the deity or the humanity or the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ is the definition of all false religions and cults that are out there. Such as Jehovah's Witnesses denying the deity of Christ. The Mormons denying the deity of Christ. Other groups come along and deny the humanity of Christ. If you deny the deity or the humanity or the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ or the unique nature of the Son in the eyes of the Father, all of this comes to minimize Jesus Christ. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Spirit of Antichrist. It's important that we recognize it because it is the dominant philosophy of our time. The dominant philosophy of the dispensation of the church for those that are opposed, for the adversary and his minions. They are pursuing the spirit of Antichrist. So it's a spirit term that we want to be familiar with as we proceed in further studies. Finally, we want to recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are contrast for us here in verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Lo and behold, here we are again in 2005 A.D. fighting this battle with a world, with a cosmos that would have us believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There are no absolutes. There is no standard of absolute truth. There is no truth. Everything is true. See, well, everything can't be true. Logically, we recognize that. That given mutually exclusive items, one must be true and the others must be false. That's the nature of reality. That's the nature of truth. Everything can't be true. 
the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And this is the battle in which we fight in the 21st century. This is our, this is our battlefield. Which, uh, which spirit do we stand for? Well, 1 John 4, 6 says we're from God, so we stand for the spirit of truth. We uh, want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to be led into the truth. And we want to stand firm against the error, the spirit of error. In every way that it raises its head, when it raises its head with the lie of evolution, we better stand for the truth. When it raises its head with the lie of homosexuality acceptance, we stand for the truth. When it raises its head in every single way that it does, we stand for the truth. We stand for the truth. So these are some other spirit terms, but clearly... This unclean spirit cannot fit in any of these other realms. What we're dealing with here is a demon. It's the only way we can take this unclean spirit term in our text. In the Greek language, a demon was a transcendent and corporal being with status between humans and deities. That's the pagan view of a demon. In the Greek language, a demon was a transcendent, incorporeal being. That means not a physical being, but an incorporeal being. A being that, you know, walks through walls. A being that you can't touch. A ghostly type, intangible, incorporeal being. A transcendent, that is, it transcends our physical plane, incorporeal being with status between humans and deities. In other words, the Theoi, the, the, the gods, Zeus and Hercules, and, or not Hercules, but Zeus and uh, uh, Apollos, Athena, Aphrodite, all of these gods, the pantheon of the gods, they were at the top. And between the gods and the men were the demons. Not quite gods, but more than men. Not quite gods, but more than men. A daimonion was lower than any theos. The highest of the daimonion could not even reach the lowest of the of the theoi, of the gods. All right. Included such creatures as nymphs, fauns, and satyrs. Now this was the term in the Greek language with the Greek mentality of the Greek uh, pantheon. All right. Now, we have been doing studies on this here recently, and we recognize that there's one true God, right? But there is a level of creation below God called the angelic realm that is indeed lower than God but higher than men. Okay, so we can, we can orient biblically to what the, the pagans were orienting to in their mythology, in their pantheon, all right? But let's also stop and consider that when God created the angelic realm, they were called the sons of God, and in some cases they were called gods. As indeed Paul says, there are many gods and many lords. And that the realm of these fallen angels posing as gods are very much the equivalent of the, the pagan idea here for these poloi theoi, these many gods, see. And that these daimonion, the demons are in fact subject to them. Alright, so just to put it in the chart for you, God is the highest, there's only one God, but then the angels below Him, called gods, and then the demons below the fallen angels, alright, and then men, 
There's your hierarchy of the spirit realm. A daimonion was lower than any theos and included such creatures as nymphs, fauns, and satyrs. All right. Now, might be a little different than what you're accustomed to. You might be um, accustomed to this. God, angels, man. Right? Within the realm of angels, of course, there's, they're broken down into what are often called elect, although we don't understand what angelic election is all about, and uh, fallen. All right? We're accustomed to that. Even within the, uh, the different angelic realms, though, there we recognize that there's a hierarchy. There's, there's levels, see, because we have rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers. We have thrones and dominions. There are different ranks of angels. There's archangels, the messenger angels, the guardian angels, the watcher angels. All right, there are the princes that we understand from the book of Daniel. There are the gods, the Elohim, the angels that are literally called Elohim, where each of these angels is called an El, and together they're called Elohim. All right, so there are, and, and it's difficult to go through these studies and to, and to do these things, but I think it's important that we at least recognize that the structure exists. I don't want to get so sidetracked that we spend a year trying to prove that a, a throne is higher than a dominion or that a ruler is higher than a principality or that, uh, you know, we have we have the breakdown. And I think the existence of that breakdown is significant, even though we don't we can't totally determine what the layers are. All right. Now, the. Rabbis tried to do that. They came up with a seven-level hierarchy of these guys from archangels on down. Uh, but I think um, some of that is, is counterproductive. Now, where this is going to be slightly different is because the, the question remains, it are fallen angels equal to the demons? Are those equivalent terms? Are those equivalent terms? Are they interchangeable terms? Or are they equal or not equal to the demons? All right. And uh, a lot of pastors equate them. I used to. I no longer do. And that's fine. So I just want you to be familiar with this, that I do not view demons as equivalent to fallen angels. They're subject to the fallen angels. Satan is the ruler of demons. But Satan is not a demon. Satan is an angel. In fact, he's called a cherub. He's a cherubim. He's a fallen angel. All right. So, a little, little chart for you there. I believe that demons are not the same as fallen angels. And we'll talk about that here as well. So, under point E... Well, just recognizing that a demonion is lower than the theoi, not quite a theos. All right? So point E, Satan is the ruler of demons as the prince of the power of the air. Matthew 12, 24 and 26, Ephesians 2, 2. Satan is the ruler of demons 
All right. Satan is the ruler of demons. I have lost track of the number of books I've read where a scholar says, see, he's the ruler of demons. He's a demon. Fallen angels are demons because Satan's the ruler of demons. Well, that's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It'd be like saying I'm a child because I'm the ruler of children. <laughs> no, I'm a parent. <laughs> I'm not a child. All right. And Sharon and I have rulership over our children. We can say, well, we're rulers of children. But that doesn't mean I'm a child. It doesn't mean we're children. It means we're parents. Okay. The logical fallacy that says, well, he's the ruler of demons, so fallen angels must be demons, is, uh, is actually not a valid conclusion to make. Matthew 12, 24 and 26, Ephesians 2, 2. Matthew 12, 24 and 26. In verse 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And by the way, I'm not convinced that Beelzebul is equivalent to Satan either. That Beelzebul may be the name of an entirely different fallen angel. But for the moment, let's just assume that Beelzebul is the equivalent of Satan because the Lord uses the name Satan in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan. But verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to him, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And that is, in fact, the circumstance of Satan's fallen kingdom. It is laid waste. It is ready to be destroyed. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is a circumstance that is, acute, that is assumed to be true. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, of course he's not, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. The Pharisees had their own uh, exorcists. They had their own exorcism rituals. They had their own incantations. They had their own uh, sorcery and witchcraft mechanisms by which they could try to cast out demons. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that's en pneumatitheu, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And you guys are in a lot of trouble. <laughs> because if the kingdom of God has come upon you and this other kingdom is divided and cannot stand, there's no question how this uh, battle is going to take place. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? See, Jesus Christ is able by the Holy Spirit to to go into that house, to bind that demon, to plunder, to get that demon out of there. Which is uh, part of why we understand that believers can't be demon-possessed. Because how could a demon come in, bind the Holy Spirit, pull the Holy Spirit out of a believer so that the, uh, so that the uh, demon then can take possession of that believer? It can't be done. can't be done. But the phrase ruler of demons, ruler of demons, as it's used here in verse 24 and verse 26. Um, actually, the, the term ruler only occurs in verse 24. Ruler of the demons. Just that phrase does not demand that Satan or Beelzebul are themselves demons. It just means that they rule. All right, Ephesians 2.2. 2. 
Ephesians 2.2. Description of unbelievers. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this cosmos. That is, according to cosmos wisdom, the course of this cosmos is the world's way of thinking. According to the prince of the power of the air. And that term prince is interesting because it shows the rulership, stewardship responsibilities that Satan has. Other princes are assigned to um, other responsibilities. Again, Daniel 10 for the terminology of prince in the angelic realm. Of the spirit that has now worked in sons of disobedience. And there's the term spirit again in it with an angelic context. So Satan is the ruler of demons, as the prince of the power of the air, but that does not necessarily mean that he himself is a demon. I believe the demons are his tools, just like unbelievers are his tools. Where it says here that unbelievers were dead in their trespasses and sins, they're walking according to the course of this cosmos, that means they are the tools of the devil. It doesn't mean that they're demons. It means that they're his tools. It doesn't mean that he's a human being. It means that, that those human beings are subject to him, just like the demons are subject to him. It's not necessary that Satan be a demon any more than it's necessary that Satan be a human being to have demonic tools or to have human being tools. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. All right. I'll give you one more to this. Uh, Revelation. It's not of the notes, but just... Off the top of my head, Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So here's a fallen angel. His name is Apollyon, and the Hebrew is called Abaddon. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God's going to protect the 144,000 in the tribulation. They will be sealed. They will be protected. And these demons that are unleashed out of the abyss cannot touch them. Matter of fact, verse 6 says, In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. I can imagine there's going to be a ton of suicide attempts where people are going to jump off bridges. They're going to go splat at the bottom, but they cannot die. They will not be permitted physical death. And uh, notice in verse 11, They have as king over them the angel, Angelos of the abyss. The angel of the abyss. I, I truly believe that fallen angels and demons are not synonymous. They're not one and the same. They, they are ruled by the fallen angels, but they are not fallen angels. And their abode is not the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. All right. Again, future angelic studies are going to break down for you. Satan, Apollyon. Abaddon, Beelzebub, the different terms for the uh, Asmodeus and all the other demonic terms that we have, proper names that we have for fallen angels. Well, Satan is the ruler of demons. 
Now, we will come back and deal with demonic testimony. We're going to recognize that the Pharisees cannot identify their Christ or they're not willing to do so. They might recognize that he's sent from God as a teacher. They may be left without any of their explanation because of the miracles. They cannot conclude publicly otherwise. But neither will they stand forth and proclaim, Behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No Pharisee is going to stand up that's holding their allegiance to these Pharisees is going to stand up and say, You are the Holy One of God. They won't let themselves do that. But the demons can't help themselves. The demons will provide a very striking demonic testimony. And this is a part of identifying, part of the great confession, part of the, um, the, 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 the hymn that we have in Timothy in terms of the mystery of godliness that Jews, Gentiles, even angels, elect and fallen, are testifying to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And so uh, we'll deal with some of these principles next week. We'll talk about the demonic testimony and we will actually view the, uh, the expulsion, the casting of that demon out. All right? Then we'll teach you a spell that you can use to, uh, where you also can become an exorcist and cast out demons on the streets of Austin. Would that be fun? I'm joking. <laughs> Tongue in cheek firmly. There are no spells, there are no incantations. If you start trying to do some kind of witchcraft to cast out demons, you're in trouble. We'll look at a passage that will warn you against any such foolishness. All right? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, as always, we're dealing with these demonic realms, these demonic studies, focusing on the uh, fallen angels and their organizational structure, focusing on their minions, including not only demons in the invisible realm, but Unbelievers here in the visible realm are the, uh, the uh, uh, forces of darkness that are working against your plan and your purpose. Father, I pray that we might always uh, be mindful of these things so that we keep our armor on and never, never assume we can take it off safely. And Father, uh, also never let us get distracted by the people involved. Our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but it is truly against the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Father, I pray that we'll be equipped to engage in, in the angelic conflict, both in the earthly realm and the spiritual realm. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.